You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is episode 153. I'm Victor Marks, and this week it's just you and I, listeners. That's right. Uh, unfortunately, we had recorded a full episode with Mike Worthley, who is fantastic, and it was lost to the OS X audio subsystem. So sometimes, even though we're great fans of technology, it conspires against us. I hope you won't mind. We're going to cover the top news stories, and we're also later in the episode going to have an interview with Suzanne Chani. I had a chance to meet with her and speak with her, and she talked about meeting with Apple in the early days, talking to Wozniak. She talked about her use of the iPad in music and how music is changing for her, technology is changing for her, and how a Mac plays into her music creation. I hope you like it. So we'll get to that. But first, the news. Now, there's been a lot of commentary from the supply chain about the iPhone X. The commentary is that the price is too high, that that the traditional sales are, are should be cooling off after the holidays, and they're they're projecting these doom and gloom kind of cuts for the iPhone X, and that's causing them to cut estimates. Now, this hand wringing comes from the Taiwanese industry publication, The Economic Daily News, which cites supply chain sources saying Apple trimmed iPhone X orders next quarter from 50 million units to 30 million units. And the shares of Apple suppliers subsequently fell because analysts are trimming their estimates. Now, Apple has warned a long time against reading too much into supply chain speculation. Because what happens is that people like Digitimes and so forth, they, they sort of have the right sources but they come to the wrong conclusions, especially when they speculate about products themselves. Now, this this kind of speculation has happened before. The, when the iPhone 8 launched, market watchers wondered who's going to buy the mid-range handset when the premium flagship model was right there coming on the next couple weeks. Well, as it turns out, the iPhone 8 way outperformed the iPhone 7. And so, you know, as much as Apple doesn't break down iPhone sales by model, it's it's really kind of clear that this isn't exactly on a speculation, but it's out there and I want you to know about it. Countering that speculation is Rosenblatt Securities. Now, what's interesting about Rosenblatt Securities is two things. First of all, they tend to have a very negative outlook on Apple. So for them to provide this positive outlook, saying that production of the iPhone X remains right on schedule, according to their analyst note that they issued, is that, that you know, that's that's noteworthy. Um, their analyst said that there's been no evidence of further cuts to iPhone X production after the holiday season, and that rather than production cuts, they believe it's possible the Taiwanese media is confused, and they're, they're thinking about cuts in iPhone 8 and 8 Plus production, that the iPhone X is ramping up. What's also interesting is that they're seeing an increase in sales in China, which can only be a good thing for Apple. So that's worth noting. Uh, and, and one of the reasons that the iPhone X is such a device is moving so well is consumer sentiment, right? And consumer sentiment says that the advanced true death camera and the face ID camera and face ID implementation are really major drivers of iPhone 10 user satisfaction. So people have been saying that there's a, you know, there's, there's this sort of narrative that says that people should be turned off by the iPhone 10's quote unquote missing home button and touch ID. Uh, but that's not the case. People who actually have the phone and use the phone are really happy with the phone. So I, I think that, you know, if you had fear or hesitation about going to the phone, obviously there's still the iPhone 8 or 8 Plus, which have the same A11 Bionic processor that have the same good camera or similarly good camera, uh, that 
you don't have to worry about it. But know that Apple is moving to a face ID across as many devices that they can kind of implementation. I, I don't know when it would come to the iPhone SE, for example, but you know that pretty much the next iPhone lineup of new phones is going to have face ID. But that's okay. People that have it so far have been overwhelmingly positive about it. Now, in terms of device activations, this is another way sort of measuring and trying to read the tea leaves when Apple doesn't tell us about sales. That device activations for the week leading up to Christmas of this year, Apple has 44% of them, Samsung at 26%, and pretty much everyone else hanging in there at 5 to 3%. You know, the Huawei, the Xiaomi, the Motorola, the LG, Vivo, that's all in the 3 to 5% range. The iPhone 10 hit 14.7% of all activations during the holiday season. And this comes from Yahoo's Flurry Mobile. And the iPhone 8 and 8 Plus, they came in at 8.1% and 8.7% respectively, or if you add it up, you know, 16.8%. So there were total iPhone 8, 8 Plus activations slightly more than the iPhone 10, but they're pretty high. The iPhone 6 is 14.9%. The iPhone 7 is 15.1%. So these, these current range of phones are highly activated. Now, the iPhone 6 stands out a little higher. The iPhone 6S at 12.6%. The iPhone 6 launched into uh, India. So that's where that activation number comes from. The iPhone 6 launched that model in select international markets in the spring. And, and so cost is a huge factor in countries like those for many of the people there. And that's why the iPhone 6 is marketed as the affordable option. And that's why we're seeing increased activations there. Now, Apple claimed 44%. Uh, Samsung rose five points to that 26%, which kept the smaller rivals at bay. Samsung isn't really eating Apple's lunch as much as it's eating Vivo and Oppo and people like that. Now, Google's Pixel phones didn't really make a whole lot of dent. You know, they, they're, they're cool. There are four models, and they haven't captured a whole lot of consumer mind share, according to Flurry. And they're measuring these smart device activations through the million mobile apps that use the analytics services that the company provides. So there are apps out there collecting activation data, and that's where they're getting this from. It's, it's the best data you get sometimes. You know, the, the data you have is worth more than uh, speculation. This is one that uh, near to my heart is the idea of archiving things. Now, you know that Mike Worthley and I both have collections of old computing stuff. And Mike, although he's gotten rid of a lot of that, has written articles in the past about his home storage network where he's archived storage and data from years and years and years from his family so that he's got everything. Preservationists have extracted the source code and some of the launch software for the predecessor to the Macintosh, the Apple Lisa. And the Computer History Museum is intending to make it available after Apple examines and releases it for publication. This is a unique situation because Apple has really released very few pieces of source code across its huge history. The Computer History Museum curator announced in a mailing list that the source code and some early applications have been recovered using an assortment of disk imaging tools. And, and this is a problem, you know, when you don't have the original disk drives and you don't have the original hardware, it can be kind of difficult to pull back the code out of, out of this old media. So this is one of the problems that we have and why preservation is so important. When the computers fail, and as they all do eventually, you know, capacitors leak, things like this. When the drives fail, magnetic heads become less magnetic over time. When everything, you know, eventually returns to dust. 
how do you get things off of media that was never intended to be archival in the first place? So they've recovered the source code. They have handed it over to Apple for code review to see what Apple's comfortable with releasing. And it looks like this is going to happen. Now, I, I don't expect all of it will be released because the uh, Lisa Wright application had an American Heritage Dictionary in it, and I, I don't expect that the American Heritage Dictionary is going to release their dictionary as a part of this. But for the most part, you know, being able to have Lisa Lisa Wright, Lisa Project, Lisa Draw is interesting from a historical perspective. You know, we did so much more with so less computing resources. And there was an article that Dan Liu published um, on his site that talked about this in terms of latency and how the Apple IIe is faster in terms of pressing a key and having a symbol appear on the screen than a modern computer. You know, you can have an overclocked Intel whatever, and when from the time that you press the key to the time that a character appears on the screen has longer latency than an Apple IIe. And so he talks about the way that the Apple IIe was constructed that allowed for this to be so darn quick. It's 8.6 milliseconds. And, and some modern machines are uh, as much as 100 milliseconds. It's really, really interesting. So the Lisa is, it was not a successful project, right? Uh, Steve Jobs got kicked off of it, and that's what eventually he took with him to the Macintosh division. And, and the Mac, of course, was more successful. But this was a $10,000 machine at the time. And so $10,000 in 1983 money was a lot. It's certainly more than you'd pay for an iMac Pro today. The, the ability to emulate the Lisa is, is historically interesting in what we can learn from it. The source code is interesting in what we can learn from it. I know that Mike still emulates uh, old Macintoshes using VMAC and Sheep Shaver. Uh, I still have old Macs in the garage that I pull out when I need to go to uh, System 9 or System 7. Having these tools is, is useful for research. It's, it's not just something that we look at and marvel behind a display. It's, it's interesting. We can learn things from them. So I'm interested to see Apple release this. You know, so far, historically, I think we have the, uh, the Apple II disk operating system source code and Mac Paint plus QuickDraw. And that's kind of it. It's, it's really cool that we're getting this stuff out of Apple. Now, Apple, as we talked about with Neil in the past, is working on a non-invasive glucose reader. The idea of a glucosimeter that doesn't require stabbing your finger and, and could be continuous is interesting. And the New York Times has a story which cited two sources that were familiar with the project, uh, including industry experts consulted by the paper that says that Apple is years away from a commercial product, but they're still working on the continuing research. Now, we know that there was the uh, the module that <clears throat> the rather... <clears throat> Now, we know that there was the module that Tim Cook wore, because he talked about it in an interview over the summer that Neil and I talked about, that was measuring his sugar intake and his glucose and was helping him lose weight just by managing his diet more accordingly. So the idea that Apple might add an EKG monitor, that Apple might add a glucosimeter, really turns this into a, a very interesting project and, and turns Apple into a healthcare company, which is really unique. I, I think it's something I'm looking forward to, but like, like, like they say, it's years away. And we know that, that the Food and Drug Administration has to approve things. They, they always do, especially when it's something that could be seen as medically uh, relevant. It's, uh, it's, it's going to be 
Interesting. The Times source says that this project dates back to Steve Jobs, who in, in the last month's life approved research project because he disliked pricking his finger for the blood sugar testing. So it's, it's solving these problems that are applicable to millions of people because millions of people in the U.S. are either pre-diabetic or diabetic is a big leap forward. And I am always impressed to see that. Now, I'm going to change gears here a little bit and to talk about HomePod. So HomePod, as we know, missed the Christmas season. And there's speculation about what that means and speculation about why that is. Uh, the, the presumption is that either Apple had a ton of other fires to put out, which we know that they did. Uh, they've had the root problem. They've had the iOS update problem, the HomeKit bug, that uh, the HomeKit vulnerability, I should say, and the, uh, the battery debacle, which we'll get to. The HomePod is is said to be a music speaker, but we know that it's going to have Siri in it, and it would be a huge miss if Siri in HomePod didn't address the sort of ambient, always-on control of home devices like, like you can do with HomeKit. Now, comparatively, Amazon Alexa topped the U.S. Apple Store charts number one, backing claims that Echo Dot was the top-selling item on Amazon during the holidays. The Alexa app has had the top spot since Christmas Day. It's the first time ever atop the charts. And the Alexa iOS app or Android app, they're, they're required to set up an Echo speaker. You have to use it to get on your Wi-Fi network. You have to use it if you want to enable smart home skills or even just change the uh, default music service. So this is very clearly indicative of the, uh, the success of the Alexa product. And at $29, how can you refuse an Echo Dot? I mean, you'd have to be like Neil or concerned about the privacy aspects of it. But for most people, it's an impulse purchase. The app also hit second place on the UK App Store. It was fifth in Germany and Austria. And Amazon announced, of course, that it was the number one selling an Amazon device. The Google Home product, and I have a Google Home Mini, rose from 38th on Christmas Eve to 6th on Christmas Day. And that points to healthy numbers for Google Home Mini or Google Home or Home Max. But it's a little bit more confused than that because the Google Home application is also required for the Chromecast media streamers. And I want to point out again that you can do interesting things where if you have a Google Home Mini and a Chromecast, you can use your voice to kick off the entertainment on the Chromecast. You can say, uh, hey, Google, play Stranger Things from Netflix on my TV, and it will go ahead and set up all of that just by voice and kick it off. You can do similar things with Alexa and Amazon Fire TV, but it's, it's you know, we I'm here in Tel Aviv, Israel today. And one of the, the extended family brought over with them an Amazon Alexa because it's not sold here in this country yet. And as we were setting it up, I found out the number of hurdles that you have to go through if you're trying to set it up outside of one of the officially supported countries. And there are a few of them. It's, it's a minor diversion, but just indulge me for a moment. The, first of all, if you want to do any of the calling features, which Alexa does, Alexa acts like a modern version of a landline. In your home. If you have it and you have an Amazon account and you have a US phone number, you can go ahead and use it to send messages to other people in your contact list who have an Echo Dot or an Alexa app set up. Um, you can use it to call them. You can use it to do drop in, and drop in is where you sort of call them without having it ring. It just instantly says hello and you're there kind of thing. 
um, which can be useful for in-home intercom if you had a couple of them around your house and you wanted to talk to someone on the other side of the house without getting up and walking or shouting across the house. So there are all those kinds of things that you can do with Alexa, but you have to have, first of all, you have to have an Amazon account. Then you have to, if you want to set up the calling features like that, have a US phone number so that it can verify it. It doesn't actually use the phone number for anything, but they want you to have one. And then the uh, the Alexa app isn't available on the US App Store. So first of all, you, you use a US App Store account that you have set up, which of course requires a US payment source, which are pretty easy to set up, to download the app. Then to set it up, you go through it and you start doing these features. If you want to set up all the features, you have to use a Google Voice phone number that you generate to create a US phone number. And then you uh, you know, you set your location and you find that that Israel isn't in the list of available countries to say that it's located in, which makes it mildly inconvenient if you're trying to say, Alexa, tell me the weather or Alexa, tell me the news, because it's going to tell you it in Westlake, Washington, where Amazon has offices. If you want to to get it to say the right things, you have to say, tell me the weather in Tel Aviv, and then it will work. But what happened here is that I had a, a Tato smart air conditioning control that we brought over here a few years ago, and it worked like garbage. It didn't work at all. And they wanted us to write a review of it. We were, that was the whole premise of taking the device was to write a review of it. And we ended up not writing the review because the review would have said, this product works like garbage. And that was probably not helpful to the company, probably not helpful to you, our readers or listeners, and, and mostly just entertaining for us to write. So it's, it's not really worth the effort, right? But since that time, we brought in an Amplify HD router with mesh networking system because we've been reviewing those. And we updated the firmware on the Tato device, and now it functions. So now it's we've got control of the in-home air conditioning, which is a, an electric system using an infrared remote. We've got control of that from voice using Amazon Alexa. So we can control from the web, the app, or the voice, which is cool. And I also brought the Harmony Home Hub. And the Harmony Home Hub is a product that Neil's been using with Homebridge on a Raspberry Pi so that he can kick off Siri and say, Siri, change the channel. Siri, watch a movie. Siri, do these things. And that's cool. But setting up a Raspberry Pi with Homebridge is still a little complex and not something that I would definitely recommend to, to people to do unless I knew that they were, you know, that they, they had the acuity to take it on. Here, Harmony Home Hub set up with its app. And then there's a skill that works with Amazon Alexa to, to enable it. And so now it's possible to say, watch TV, and it turns on the receiver, it turns on the cable box, it turns on the television, and saying change channel changes channels lickety-split. I have tried it side-by-side -side with HomeBridge and with HomeKit, and it is much faster under Amazon Alexa. And I think what Amazon and Google are competing for here is, you know, people ask, why is Amazon selling these at $29? Why is Google selling these things at $29 for the very bare, bare minimum one? And the answer is they're in a battle for network effects, I think. They are, for, first of all, you know, yes, that's the discounted price, but that's the price Amazon actually wants to sell them at. They wouldn't be selling them at $29 if they didn't want to. They're trying to get network effects and get a large mass of people using them so that they win the battle for the next platform. You know, the, the platform war between iOS and Android is more or less settled. It's, you know, there's still fights between fanboys online, but for the most part, it's, it's uh, a war that is kind of meaningless. The PC Mac war is well over. That's, that's long gone. It doesn't even matter at all. The idea for what's going to be the big winner on a voice first platform is still unknown.
and it could be Siri, and it could be uh, Alexa, and it could be Google Home. And the advantage that Google Home and Alexa have at this time is that while they all require a smartphone to get started, they don't care about whether you're using Android or iOS, and Apple's, of course, does. But it's it's kind of an interesting proposition for Apple because the number of people that are all in on Apple devices is smaller than the number of people that have one Apple device in sort of hybrid environment. You know, they have a Windows PC and an iPhone, or they have a uh, a Mac and an Android device, which happens. And I know that sounds a little strange to, to our dedicated fanboys out there, but it's um, it, it really is possible that there's this hybrid kind of environment thing going on. You know, there are people who buy an iPhone and load it up with all of the Google apps because it makes it the very best Google phone you could get. It's, it's sort of an odd kind of configuration. But Alexa and Google Home Mini don't care. They're about their future platform as opposed to... to working on the past platform, right? Being dedicated to the past platform. And what I know about voice first and why I think it's so interesting is this. You know, we, we have a history of progression of two things. We have computing becoming more affordable, which helps make it more widespread. And at the same time, the interface changes from more complex to le- less complex. The, the least resistance for communicating and inputting with a computer is the interface that wins. And that's why I think voice first is so promising. There are people who have Android phones and their sole way of actually using the internet is through voice, you know, asking their phone the train schedule. And of course it's accessing the internet to pull up the train schedule, but they're not opening a web browser and they're not opening a dedicated app. They're use, interacting using voice. And that's very powerful, especially if, if you're the sort of user who's got a smartphone because you bought a smartphone and have no no interest in in learning it and learning its ins and outs and using an app store and all of the other things that come along with it it's it's i think for when especially when you talk about developing markets the way of the future now that was what was so interesting was that i set up the the Amazon Alexa device and I got it working with Smart Air Controller and I got it working with Harmony Home Hub and all of those things were relatively easy. The only difficulty is knowing the syntax that Alexa requires to do things. You can say turn on the TV, but if you say turn the TV on, it it doesn't quite get that as the command. And that's not really down to Alexa as much as it is down to Harmony and they're working with Alexa. I, I think I'd blame Logitech more for that one and having the rigid skill requirement for vocabulary. But this is a problem that has yet to be solved. And it's a problem that that Siri stands to solve well. Now, the problem here is that, you know, we we say Apple's launching a $350 music speaker that happens to also have Siri. And it's got seven speakers inside and it's got far field mics and it's got the ability to sense where it is in the room and adjust its EQ accordingly. And that's fantastic. To compare it to a $29 Amazon Dot that has a, a marginally sounding speaker in it. Is, is not the same product, I agree. But where they're going converges. And so we have to talk about them in the same way together at some point, because if if we don't, then it's, it's to say that Apple is missing out on this ambient, always on kind of voice command future. And I don't think that that's their plan to miss out on it. Now, do we see a future where Apple puts Siri and, and HomeKit commands like a HomePod 
into a Beats pill? Maybe. Uh, it's certainly not at launch, but I, I think we have to get to that point for HomeKit to, to work. That's really what happens here is that the network effects, the groundswell of people causes third-party manufacturers to see that that's the platform that they want to work with. And right now, Amazon is kind of in the lead. It's, it's a difficult thing if you're a fan of HomeKit because HomeKit has greater privacy. Now, the, the issue that I have with HomeKit is the reliance on an iPad or, or an Apple TV device in order to have access outside the home. While I've been traveling, my Apple TV has apparently gone offline, and so I can't access a single HomeKit device. And I think, I think that my automation for moving the lights on and off and things like that inside the home while I'm gone is working because I have a non-HomeKit video doorbell on my house and I can see the outdoor lights turn on and off. It's, it's very much a reaching around your head to scratch your shoulder kind of thing, the long way around. Amazon Alexa is definitely one to watch. And, and I, you know, there's another story here. So home security camera company Blink, right? They raised a million dollars in crowdfunded campaign for a security camera. They shipped a second one. They announced a third Blink that was going to have HomeKit in it. I think we can pretty well count on that not happening because Amazon bought Blink. So they had this huge crowdfunding campaign. They announced a $99 video uh, doorbell that was going to function for two, to, two years with sec, five-second video events every day on a pair of lithium-ion batteries. But it's not going to get HomeKit. Now, the they have the $99 version of the Blink camera. Or they have an interior camera. They have the uh, exterior camera with IR night vision for $130, and people can monitor themselves over Wi-Fi for free, but 4G cellular compatibility costs $10 a month, along with another $10 for third-party professional monitoring. So if you were going to count on Blink to be your home security solution with HomeKit, I, I think you can safely count that out. Now, I'm going to CES next month. And at CES, I've already got a pitch from a company that is a well-reputed security company that's been doing home security for a few years, and they are going to be doing HomeKit compatibility. And so we'll talk to you all about that next month when I've had that chance to get together with them. The Qualcomm dispute. Now, Qualcomm is going after Apple, saying that Apple is infringing on their patents for baseband modems and baseband chipsets in, in Apple iPhone. Apple, in return, has gone ahead and used Intel in the iPhone 8 Plus and iPhone 10 instead of Qualcomm's baseband modem. It looks as if they are, are going to also be using MediaTek in the future. MediaTek is a Taiwanese company. MediaTek makes many, many things. So, right, the company, I said they had substituted Intel to Qualcomm. The truth is they substituted about half of their supply. And this is the thing to know about Apple is that they are very, very, very averse to being caught out with a single supplier. And in this case, Qualcomm and Intel are their suppliers for the baseband modems. They don't want to use Qualcomm because of this dispute, and so, but they don't want to switch entirely to Intel and be reliant on Intel as the sole supplier. And so they're going to shift to a company like MediaTek, which it looks like they're investigating, so that they can entirely freeze out Qualcomm in, in terms of what's going on in their product. The three principles that Apple expects of all their suppliers is that companies have to offer a leading technical competitiveness, they have to have comprehensive product blueprints, and they need reliable logistic support. And, and that, that makes sense if you think about it. You know, you have to have the comprehensive product blueprint. You have to have the plans. You have to have a technological edge. You have to be able to compete. You, know, you can't offer a worse product, and you need to be able to ship it. 
You need to be able to ship it reliably and on time and in the quantities that are needed when you start to run a production line of iPhone X. So the dispute with Qualcomm, Apple claims the company withheld a billion dollar in royalty rebates in retaliation for cooperating with South Korean antitrust investigators. Now, all of this could be rendered moot if Qualcomm is acquired by Broadcom, but it's still unfolding at this point. So we'll keep monitoring it. We'll let you know what happens there. Mike Worthley had a review of Pixelmator Pro we published on the site. And Pixelmator Pro brings machine learning to image editing. And I was asking Mike about this. And I, I you know, I, I've had Pixelmator regular version for years. Pixelmator was started by two guys, two brothers. And they first compiled it on a white MacBook years ago. And the point of doing it on the MacBook in, in 2008, 2009, when they started, was that they were compiling the application on the very lowest spec current machine that Apple offered at the time so that they could be sure it would run really fast on good hardware, on, on the better upper top end of the line machines. And that philosophy was radical because Adobe apps, you had to run Photoshop on a really, really good machine, the fast machine to have enough power to really do it right. And learning it on a low spec machine was kind of an exercise in futility and pain. Here, the they used the reverse approach. And I always loved that about them. With Pixelmator Pro, they've gone ahead and implemented machine learning in Pixelmator. And the idea is that you're going to bring professional imaging editing tools to the Mac. You're going to exploit the latest Mac OS technologies. You're going to use Apple's Metal 2 to speed up graphics. You're going to lean on machine learning so that when you drag a photo into Pixelmator Pro, the Apple had an idea at identifying what's in that image, and then it can use that to automatically name the layers. And you can drag an image on top of Pixelmator and it labels them all. You can use raw images, you can use JPEG, you can use whatever you've got. And I asked Mike about editing with machine learning. And he said, it happens, but you don't really notice it. It's there, but it's not present. There's no great flashing indicator that says machining learning is now in use. So what happens is that, you know, you, you go ahead and input an image and it identifies it a little bit. But when you're cropping things or you're trying to to outline that there's stuff going on that isn't necessarily apparent, but it's helping you. You know, Mike also liked the interface changes. You know, when you uh, for, first of all, the old Pixelmator was a series of palettes laid out over the went screen. And you could arrange them the way you want. Here we get more of a monolithic window so that it's much easier to not have to tie all these things. Um, there are sliders and palettes for making precise alterations. Uh, you, when you increase a brush, you know if you have a brush size that's too big or too small, you drag a slider, and the slider is surrounded by a circle representing the size of the current part of the adjustment. So you know exactly what size the brush will be. And it's little touches like that that make it a lot easier than using a, a tool that doesn't have those, like either the old Pixelmator or, I don't know, Adobe Photoshop. Now, Adobe Photoshop is was the first great image editor, and it's been on the Mac for 30 years. There's there's no question, and it's an astonishing app. There are a lot of reasons to choose it. There's good reasons to choose Pixelmator Pro as well, and one of them is price. Photoshop used to cost hundreds of dollars, but now you can only get it by a subscription, which means you pay less up front, but you never end paying. And Pixelmator Pro is $60 and a one-time purchase. And the other is a little bit ease of use. Adobe is always adding features without ever taking them away. And so you have a ton of ways of achieving the same or similar effects. Pixelmator also has a little bit of that, but it's a lot more controlled. 
Pixelmator feels a lot more like an Apple piece of software in that it doesn't do everything, but the things that it does do, it does really well. So that's that's where we're going with Pixelmator Pro, and I'll have a link to the review from Mike in the show notes. Now, there are a number of lawsuits about the battery debacle, and the battery debacle is one that Mike and I talked about last week, and currently we're at eight class action lawsuits. Since that time, since yesterday, in fact, what happened is that Apple released a statement explaining it a little bit more and apologizing for not making it more apparent and reducing the price to change the battery. For the battery cost at the Apple Store for placement used to be $79, and they are now reducing it to $29 as a part of their apology. This is going to only be a good thing. If you have an iPhone and you feel slow or you've had it for three years, this is a good excuse as any to take it in and get the battery changed. And there is no reason to have a third party do it when the price is now $29. If you want to check your battery life, the easiest way that I've found to do it is to go to the App Store and download a free app called Battery Life. Convenient, right? And it says that for your iPhone 6, the maximum milliamp hour rating of the battery when it was new was 1,810 or 1810. And it will show you what your current capacity is. And I checked my iPhone 6, which I replaced at the two-year mark. And the, I had the battery replaced at the two-year mark. And it's uh, currently at 1,700 milliamp hours. So I still have tons of battery life. Mike was telling me that he believes that when the battery is at 80%, of its original life, that Apple will go ahead and change it. But under this this $29 plan, I think you can just walk in and say, I want it replaced, and they'll do it. You know, you may have 83%, so it's kind of borderline. You might have some usable life left, but you can just go ahead and change it. And I, I think that's the right thing to do. The commentary on this has been difficult for me because I've been looking around the web at some of our competitors and some of our friends out there. You know, Horace Didier, who, and I, I like Horace. I like him very much. He, he runs a Simcoe. He, uh, he doesn't know me from anyone, but never mind that. I, I like what he writes about. He posted saying that this press release from Apple announcing the changes in the apology, he entitled it, Apple Explains Chemistry. And I think that's not accurate. I, I think the real problem here is not the chemistry of the lithium-ion battery that shortens the battery life or supplies under voltage and requires the processor to throttle down in order to not shut down the phone spontaneously. I think the real problem was a communication failure. Every time that Apple doesn't communicate something to the user is, is an opportunity for this kind of debacle. And Apple is making up for it by communicating afterwards. Had they just communicated to the user in the first place, had they just put on the screen dialog box that says, your battery is needing a service, your battery is at less than optimal capacity and we're going to have to shut down the phone, or your battery is low on capacity and needs to be changed and we're going to make your phone slower in order to do it. How many people bought phones because they thought that their phone was being made slow? So the statement, the message to the customers, has people also upset. You know, you'd say that some people are never happy, but I think these people are right. The a Apple's only issuing this apology after the bad press and after the lawsuits for slowing down older phones, saying that it's a misunderstanding and reducing the price of the out-of-warranty iPhone battery replacement by $50. And people's reaction to this, I think somewhat rightly, is, is oh, Apple are crooks. But it was just a misunderstanding, right? You misunderstood. See, we were never trying to tell you we were forcing you to buy new phones. So here's $50 off a battery that you still need to pay us for. Still friends is, is one of the reactions. 
right? Another reaction is that the batteries ought to be free to avoid the class action lawsuit. And, and there are people who insist that Apple slowed down your phone because of the model, not how new the battery it had. You know, the alternative to that is, is that you can't even notice how slow it is if it won't hold charge, though. But this is, this is, there are people who are rightly upset that Apple's apology is as solid as a frayed lightning cable, one person put it. You know, they, they, they these are people who want Apple to start re-signing old iOS and enabling downgrades so that you don't have to go through the trouble of having an OS that d disables your battery. Now, App Apple said as a part of this under this apology that what they're going to do is in future iOS versions, they're going to notify people that their batteries are, are failing. You know, we will issue an iOS software update with new features that will give users more visibility into the health of their iPhone battery. So after a new iOS update, you get a notification that you need a battery replacement. How is that better as an experience? You know, if you update your phone and all of a sudden you have a notification saying, hey, you just updated your phone, your battery's bad. Doesn't that also feel bad? I feel like Apple has backed themselves into a corner here. You know, we know that they have billions of dollars and therefore people want the batteries for free. It's basically frustrating all the way around. No part of this is, is a good situation. And, and this is causing people to leap to Samsung. Not that Samsung has a great history of batteries either, but this is, this is really, really a big problem. And I think Apple did this to themselves. You know, people say that they were forced to order an iPhone 8 since their 6 is suddenly unresponsive. And, and while they weren't actually forced, I, I understand the feeling. I think that Apple needs to do better. And I think the pundits who are saying that this is a human problem that the that the people re are reacting badly to this or that it is a misunderstanding you know those those are people that also need to reconsider this but this is really a difficult thing and apple's no good answers at this point you know i i see a lot of complaints i see a lot of common complaints a new battery doesn't reimburse me the money i spent on a new phone and there are other people who want to know if they can be reimbursed the 50 dollars because they spent the 79 on the battery replacement this is it, it's a very bad world when Apple creates this situation where you can put them in the same kind of a response bucket as, as the airlines apologies or the cable company apologies. We, we, we want a better Apple than this. And we're not going to get one if, if we constantly support Apple at every turn. This is not the way it should be. How many people bought phones because they thought they upgraded the OS and now their phone is slow? And it's not necessarily that the OS made it slow other than Apple in the OS said, the battery is weak, we need to do something so that the phone has a usable life, you know, it can be used longer. Now, the, the thing that's interesting is if you go back in time to the first iPhone 10 years ago, uh, Greg Joswiak, who, who has been in one of the most recent Apple keynotes, uh, Jaws has been there for years. He was talking about, you know, he said something to the effect of, and I'm going to paraphrase it, something to the effect of, uh, as iPod users have learned over time that you don't really need to change an iPod's battery, that you probably won't need to change an iPhone's battery either, that it'll last, you know, for, for three years. And if it needs to be changed within its uh, normal life, you know, if it needs to be changed within its first year warranty or second year warranty under AppleCare, we'll just go ahead and change it for free. So I think that's, that's interesting in this discussion, but it's not entirely relevant because 10 years ago's iPhone was a very different phone than today's iPhone. You know, we're demanding a lot more computing power 
out of a device that is physically the same size. And the battery has increased as the chips have shrunk, but we're, we're still asking an awful lot of this technology to last for longer than the laws of physics allow. The upshot is, I think Apple has finally done the right thing, that this whole thing could have been avoided had they done it from the big, had they communicated from the beginning. And that's really, I think, where the mistake is. I, I don't blame as much the pundits. You know, and when all this happened, uh, I was watching the local news here, and they had a guy come on Israeli TV on the news channel, on the news broadcast, 6 o'clock news, and disassemble an iPhone 6 and replace the battery on the air, which is is great for video feed, but is a little bit ludicrous. You know, it's it's making a lot out of a problem that needs a little bit more nuanced explanation. And it needs this explanation only because Apple failed to give us this explanation in the first place. <sighs> Thanks for hearing me out on that. That's my little frustration with Apple over that. And that's, that's the thing of it is that I, I don't think any of us here at Apple Insider believe that Apple is perfect. And we, we hold their feet to the fire when they need to be held to the fire. Uh, this is clearly one of those cases. They could have fixed all of this had they just let people know what they were doing and why and what the correct course of action was. Could have been prevented. That's that's my rant on bat battery debacle. But it, it really is frustrating, you know, because now I have people asking me. I had a person ask me last night, should I change my battery myself or should I do have the Apple store do it? And I think at the $29 price, the Apple the answer is clearly, absolutely go ahead and, and have Apple do it. And the person that asked me is a neurosurgeon. And I said, have you, you, you've performed surgery, right? And he said, yeah, I've performed surgery. And I said, great. You can take off the little micro cables, the flex cables at the top of the iPhone display. And it was at that point that he said, yeah, I'll just go back to Apple and have him do it. It's, it's really um, a thing that we shouldn't even have to be talking about. That's how badly Apple's messed this one up. And, and the thing is, I really believe that people are going to remember this and remember it wrongly and hold it against Apple for years to come. I, I, I do. I know people that have held the DRM and iTunes music against Apple. I know people have held other kinds of things against Apple for years to come. It's, it's going to come up. There are going to be these people that come up and say, should I get an iPhone or I'm not going to get an iPhone. I'm not ever going to get an iPhone because they have battery problems. They make my phone slow when they update the OS. And it's, it's, uh, it's frustrating. I, I want Apple to be better than this. That's what I really want. You know, we have very few companies that that proclaim that they care about their customer and try and take that into action. I want them to get it right. Uh, Apple is expected to increase stock buyback. They're going to grow dividends as a result of tax reform. So this is something that people have been asking for. People for a long time, there, well, there was no Apple dividend. And then uh, they then they relented and and gave out a dividend, and so the dividend is going to increase. The uh, they're going to continue to buy back shares. The share buyback program should be uh, should increase by around sixty nine billion spread across three or four years, growing the effort to about two hundred thirty five billion since they started it in two thousand twelve. Apple's going to increase the dividend by around fifteen percent rather than the ten percent that delivered a year ago. And this will cost Apple about $10 billion across those four years. Gene Munster uh, published this analysis, and he said that he doesn't think that Apple is going to actually do anything regarding its debt offerings with repatriated cash. As, as of September, they have $17 billion cash on hand in the U.S. and $269 billion in foreign countries. The tax reform package allows repatriating that cash, but they'd have to declare a tax liability of about $30 billion payable over eight years. 
So we will see how that works out. And that's that's it for the news. Next up, I'm going to let you listen in on a chat that I had with Susan Chani, the uh, the Grammy Award nominee, the the master of the synthesizer. She's really incredible, and and she talks about Steve Wozniak. She talks about using Digital Performer on the Mac, and Digital Performer and Market the Unicorn have been around for ages, and and her keeping current and her effort to keep current with that, and how she incorporates her iPad into her performances. It's really something special, and I want to thank you for listening. This is the Apple Insider Podcast, episode 153. Susan Chani up next. Welcome back. I'm I'm Victor with the Apple Insider Podcast, and I'm here with Suzanne Chani. Chani, forgive me. No, no, it's okay. It's Italian. Uh, not everybody speaks Italian. I should know better. <laughs> I apologize. No problem. Um, Niente problem. Okay. <laughs> so uh, last night, my daughter and I watched your performance. And she wants me to ask, how did you prepare for this? How did you prepare for the performance? Well, I've been touring for a whole year. So I started out a year ago. Uh, you know, the configuration of the instrument changes as, as time goes on. So I'm playing the Buchla 200E. And when I started out a year ago, I had a much bigger system, but saw that it was dangerous with the airlines. Uh, and so I kind of whittled it down a little bit, and uh, Don Buchla was purposefully designing a performance instrument. So he has the, the configuration is in a folding case that fits into a very light case so that I can, uh, you know, carry it. That's probably not what you wanted to know, but that's where it starts, is can you get the instrument to travel it, so you can do concerts it's, it's a very reasonable <laughs> thing you know I, I i think about a lot of the equipment that wasn't designed to be ruggedized or and, and is, is somewhat unreliable when it travels yes and uh, so having a system that does collapse for travel and, and is meant to be traveled with is, is really important <laughs> it's still fragile but then what you do is you you choose your modules so you could make the configuration, you know, optimized for your performance, but you have you have limitations. You know, that's 18 panel units, and uh, so I choose the I choose the modules. Then I start to program the what I call raw materials. So I use four sequences, and as a matter of fact, I use the same sequences that I used to use in the 70s. Uh, I wrote a paper uh, a long time ago about how to play the bukla. And in it, I documented the performance techniques that I developed in the 70s. I went back to that paper when I came back to electronic music, and I learned a lot. Because I had, you know, the concepts of performance outlined there. So that became my starting point, my sequences. And then um, I started out with the current modules, the 200E, and I found that I couldn't do everything I wanted to do. So I got a clone of a 200 module that I was missing. And that was called the MARF, the Multiple Arbitrary Function Generator. And I think that's very, very important for live performance because it gives you a very high level of control. It's like a three-dimensional sequencer. 
Uh, so I once I chose all the modules, uh, I I work, I practice, I play, I have fun, and uh, and when I'm performing, you know, some of it is is known because I I know my starting point, but it's in the moment, and I think that's the excitement of playing live and playing with the. It's like jazz in a way where you you have some givens and then you're exploring those materials and in this case exploring them in the special ways that an analog modular lets you. Um, I'm, I'm spoiled because the bukla is designed as a performance instrument. It gives me a lot of feedback. The lights. Did you see the lights last night? Yeah. Yeah, I, I like to project the um, you know the bukla up so that people can see what's going on. You can speak louder. We were behind the projectors. Okay. At one point, and then we moved to the side. Oh, good. Okay, great. Yes, because so then because mm, also um, you know it, it gives you information, so you see that the lights tell you what's going on inside, and when you're performing, you use that as a you know something that's feeding back to you and you interact with it you, you mentioned uh, that you came back to electronic music there was a time when you when you weren't focused on electronic music well you know electronic music has gone through so many um, eras and I started out in the pure you know I started out in uh, computers you know, P PDP-10s, mm -hmm. uh, and the Bukla. And that was my love affair, that analog system. Once I moved to New York City, uh, it was a downhill mm, trajectory because the Bukla would get broken and nobody could fix it. So by that time, uh, what we think of as synthesizers or you know we're, we're proliferating mm -hmm. there were a lot of big players more uh, Korg, Moog, uh, ARP, uh, uh, Sequential Circuits, mm -hmm. uh, Yamaha and so I started because I was already had my my chops you know I was already a technocrat you know I started working with all those companies Roland you know all mm -hmm. of them so I spent, you know, 19 years kind of just doing all that, you know, and and it evolved, you know, we, we then got um, digital workstations and you could record in your computer and we all know, I think we know, you, you might not know because you're only 12. MIDI. Yeah, MIDI, right, okay. So, but then what, what I've come back to is my origins, my roots, my bukla, <laughs> you know, because in all this technology field, burgeoning, huge field, I think we, you know, I'm a conduit to the, to the past, to the origins, when it was an exciting new language, unencumbered by commercialism where there were no keyboards on the instruments and you were looking at a new language, a, a spatial language, a quad spatial, uh, you know, electronic uh, 
world that uh, Bukla was committed to, and I was his uh, acolyte. Mm. Mm. So I, I should ask. I, I know that you've returned to this this very the, the root of it into the Bukla. Um, has digital affected the way that you you've expressed your art? Has it had a you know has it has it changed the way you approach it at all, or or is it just simply that that the DAW exists as a way to record and capture the performances and, and the work that you do? Well, that's a big question because I've used you know digital in so many ways. You know, I I love the fact that it allows me to do surgery. You know, on certain sound design projects, you can get in there with a microscope and deal with things. I I did a lot of work in New York uh, that was commercial work, where I designed logos. You know, I did a a sound for AT and T that was a third of a second. You know, and you need computers to, you know, uh, access that microcosmic world. Uh, and uh, you know, I did a, my my own recorded music um, was orchestrations. When I started out, you know, there were classically based uh, comp- compositions expressed through electronics and merged with the electronic language also. Mm-hmm. So I had a, a new vocabulary that was part pure electronic and part classical, because I grew up as a pianist. And uh, those recordings, the studio recordings, uh, you know, when I started out, there was no digital recording. But as digital evolved, we had digital mixing, which was hugely important for, you know, mixing these very sophisticated multi-track electronic uh, layers. Mm -hmm. Uh, So digital, I think my next album, uh, I'm going to do two things. One is I'm going to release quadraphonic uh, recordings of my live bukla. And then I'm also, uh, I've written a project about five years ago in Venice, Italy, and it's going to be a studio album. And I think I'm going to use um, soft, soft synths, something that I always said I would never do. Every time I say I'll never do something, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Um, can I ask a little bit about the tools that you're going to use for those soft sense projects? Do you know Do you know what you're going to even use um, for software and hardware for that? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm on a Mac, okay, and my Mac is uh, a, a Mac Pro, and I'm trying to keep that as alive as long as I can because I love it, and uh, I love you know the in- I I like the access and the interface, the new one, you know the uh, the, the circular the one. Canister. <laughs> the canister. <laughs> I'm not ready for that level of um, <laughs> abstraction, whatever. I mean, yeah. I just I just got a Mac MacBook Pro, and I got the old one as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm aware now that you know it doesn't. Things don't always. They don't always improve. They change. And it doesn't mean that they're not better in some ways, but I think you have to choose your tools. You know, you can't go on automatic pilot and say, I'm getting the new thing. 
I think you need to look and see what it is you want. Uh, so that's what I'm using, my Mac Pro. Uh, I use Digital Performer as my DAW, my sequencer. And partly because I've been using it for 20 years or whatever. And it's, you know, it's, I can do it with my eyes closed. Um, they also come up with new releases that I'm using an older release. Uh, because, you know, I can't see the new release. It's gotten so tiny. Uh, you know, nobody thinks about mm, people getting older, <laughs> not being able to see. There was, there was this thing that Apple did with their interface so that the interface could scale. Uh -huh. And it's up to the, the folks at uh, Mark of the Unicorn and Digital Performer to take advantage of that. Okay. Um, it's, it's a form of resolution independence. Okay. Right. The, the screens keep becoming higher and higher resolutions. I can And so the do text that. keeps shrinking. Uh huh. But if they've taken advantage of this when they're developing it. Okay. Then you, what, what should happen is that the size visibly stays the same as what you're used to. Mm hmm. And the detail becomes sharper. And how do I access that? Sorry, how that's, do I get it to do that? That's a good question. It's, it's again, something that they need to be thinking about. And maybe they but, did, and uh, I just don't know it. But the other way to approach it is in, um, in system preferences and accessibility. Okay. Uh, you can change things like text sizes, and it may... You know, it's, it's really something that they should have allowed for. A setting on LCAP 10, which is like the second newest... Uh, setting is called magnification. Okay. But I don't reckon it gives or when you do it. But you, it when you put it, it you can see them ginormous. Okay. Yeah, you can magnify specific okay. parts of the interface as you he mouse does. over it. Mm -hmm. he it. Um, well, it's. I like it. You know, doing that is is fine and well, but it, it looks like this when you're trying to work with it. Um, I can I can zoom in on parts. And then oh, have the mouse fall around where I am. That's not magnification. And that is that's zooming in. Yeah, but that's and not that's my magnification. Accessibility. Okay, yeah. got it. Okay. Great. Um, the other thing is in the display, you can change the cursor size and things like that. But really, it's about the uh, them oh, taking good. advantage of resolution independence. Oh, good. Okay. It's always good to learn something new. <laughs> Small tips, but you know yeah. you're you're not alone in you're you're not alone in choosing to use the slightly older machine. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> the uh, I I spoke with a number of uh, of video professionals in New York not long ago, and they they were concerned about. Things like the lack of ports or the changing ports. Mm -hmm. uh, they were concerned about the lack of flexibility in updating the internals of the machine. Mm -hmm. The uh, the Canister Mac Pro doesn't allow you to change graphics cards, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there are a lot of, you know, uh, as processing, you know, that runs on external cards and mm -hmm. yeah, and it's just easier. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so Apple's said, a after hearing sort of the, the dull uproar from, from everyone, letting them know that they needed to update the machine, their announcement was that they're going to release an updated Mac Pro, that it's going to be a modular machine. Okay. And that it's going to be about a year away, mm -hmm. more or less. Mm -hmm. And 
internal drives or not? Still not. They didn't really say. Mm -hmm. They they don't mm -hmm. give away too much information. Okay. What they said is that they wanted to let everyone know that they're going to make one. Okay. And they used the word modular. Okay. And so we don't even know exactly what they mean by that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are people that are experimenting with using the new MacBook Pro that has the USB-C ports on it. Right. And they're using external um, chassis that carry PCIe cards. Okay. So that they can use external GPUs or, mm -hmm. or other things in there. Mm -hmm. It's not an officially supported path. Okay. But it functions. Okay. Um, and then it there functions. are ways Surprising around. Well. I yeah. mean, there are always ways around. But, you know, it's nice if you don't have to. Well, <laughs> you, you sort of want to experiment within constraints, right? You want to yeah. experiment with the sound modules and the, the, uh, the Eurorack system, and you want to experiment with the soft sense. You don't really want to experiment with, is my computer going to work today? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've had a long relationship. You know, me and Apple, and I, I I remember when I moved from, I came out from New York to the West Coast to do an album. I, I frequently would just travel so I could focus on the work, and I came out to the West Coast and nobody used PCs. And I had started in New York because nobody had Apples, right? right. And, and, and so I'm out here on the West Coast at a recording studio getting ready to work, and I have to port everything over to a Macintosh, which I didn't know anything about. It was a nightmare and a blessing, because that's what got me, you know, started in Mac, which is just, whoa, so, you know, it was so much friendlier. Then PC was a nightmare. I mean, it was like, you forgot to put the comma in, you forgot to put the, you know, if you wanted to do anything, if you wanted to make a copy, you know, you had to speak code you know it, it was not a friendly environment uh so okay i'm happy i got into apple and i stayed there forever and then i remember meeting uh steve wozniak one time and uh he he was amazing uh he you know we, we were having lunch and he does this thing where he solves matrix you know like sudoku number problems right there mm -hmm. have you ever seen him do this He's never done that when I've met him. Well, you give him four numbers, and he crunches them and makes this perfect Sudoku where every, you know, four squares, you know, add up to the, add up exactly yes. the same, the diagonals, the, the, you know, it's just amazing. And you can feel his head, you know, heating up with brain power. So anyway, that was my, uh, so I, yeah, I use, um, I forgot where we started. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what you do with SoftSense. That's really exciting for me. I, uh, I have to tell you, I enjoyed, um, I think when I was younger, I had the uh, Star Wars disco album. Oh, fun. And, uh, and I, I've been listening to uh, some of the waves. And oh, nice. The, uh, the fifth wave really, really appeals to oh, me. Oh, nice. Hmm? Oh, my daughter asks, um, what are soft synths? Right. Well, they're, they live in the computer, so they're not external synths. They're designed, you know, to be accessible uh, in, in the, uh, 
in the sequencer program. So there are a lot of new uh, groups out there. The Spectrasonics has a wonderful offering. Moog Legacy mm -hmm. uh, just did an, a release. Um, there's uh, was, uh, the big Berlin company, Native Instruments. Yes. So I'm going to start exploring those. The one thing that I don't like, though, is like the mouse. I, I don't like, you know, how my hand just gets a cramp, you know, mm -hmm. when you're going through the soft synths. You know, I have to figure out a way. So that's going to be my starting point is to figure out some kind of mechanical interface that will allow me to do this work without mousing. There's, you know, it's a good question. I, I think about some of the, uh, Apple keeps telling us that their future of computing is the touchscreen. Mm -hmm. They keep saying that the iPad is their vision of the future of computing. Mm -hmm. And Moog has applications for the iPad. Mm -hmm. uh, Odulus is another company that has applications for the iPad as well mm -hmm. as Mac. And, and I others. use the iPad in my concert. I use the Animoog. The Animoog. We have the Animoog. Yeah. There's an app by Moog called Filtertron for your phone. Oh, yeah. cool. And they have Filtertron as well, but we, we have Animoog and stuff. Mm -hmm. Lovely. I love it. Uh, I also use um, an interface on the iPad for the H9 so I can control my effects. I have two iPads there in, in concert. Yeah. And I could, and, and I use an iPhone because I have one, you know, my old iPhone interfaces with one H9, my small iPad interfaces with um, the other H9 and also with the video program. So I have a video program on Macs and I use a, a, an interface, Mira, M-I-R-A, on the iPad that lets me control the visuals. That's really interesting because we were discussing when we were watching the, the performance mm -hmm. whether or not you were controlling the lighting and the visuals. Yeah, well, not really. I wasn't because I've had problems with my, you know, my, my program. Um, I was rescued yesterday by somebody who came in and, you know, I, I, I've had a lot of issues with, um, I've been developing this live video for six months and I still don't have it reliable. So, yeah. Some things conspire against us. Yes. <laughs> so, I want to ask, um, it's, it's, a, it's a broad question, I know, but what have you learned across this, this history from, from Bukla and analog and, and performance and now incorporating digital into your, your workflow? What are the things that you've learned from all of this? I've learned that it's all a wonderful playground, you know, and that it's just, you know, I've always loved technology because it keeps you awake. You know, you don't go back, you don't get bored. It's like not the same old thing. I mean, everything is infinite. Um, the piano is infinite and it's a closed system in many ways, but it's infinite. But technology is, is more obviously, you know, proliferating and uh, it triggers us, it keeps us awake, you know, new ways to do things, new ways to try things. Yeah, that's a little, you can't, you can't do that. That's like, okay, wait, break, time out. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, focusing. Oh, 
Um, okay, forgot the question. <laughs> what have I learned? I've learned, you know, um, I've been in technology, I've been out of it, I've been back in it. Um, to me, it, it always involves a partnership. I've always seen it as a collaborative process. So I'm an artist. I use it, but I need a channel open to communicate back to my tool maker so that the tools, you know, I think it is a give and a take. It's a conversation. You know, you make the tools, but we're using the tools. And that conversation needs to keep going as we evolve uh, because it's not about pure technology, like what can we do? Oh, we can be faster and we can be whatever, you know. It's about the concepts of what you need and want to do, you know, the direction. So uh, I love technology for that. And uh, sometimes it's not easy to communicate with your other half. Mm. Um, but I think uh, it's important. Definitely. And, and I know that you've got the soft synth album that you're working on. What would you tell my listeners they should listen to, to, to begin to get a good, good feel for your work? What would you say, here's where you start? Okay. Um, my first album, Seven Waves, is a good place to start. It was done um, all electronically, and the instruments are all credited. So it's a historic uh, document of where synthesis was in that time. And it was my, you know, the crystallization of my artistic approach. It was as I wanted to make a sensual, beautiful technology, calming, you know, using the machine rhythm to induce a sense of calm and mm -hmm. safety. Uh, recently, Finders Keepers out of Manchester, they're, they're archeologists and they dig into the past and they found these old archival recordings of mine from the 70s. And that's very interesting. The Buchla performance is 1975. Uh, the digital version uh, doesn't have the booklet in it, but the other version, the LP, has the booklet in it that I call the cookbook mm -hmm. for how to play the bukla. And this will give you a, you know, it's not a great recording. It was a quad performance, and we were lucky it was recorded at all. So it's a document, mm -hmm. but it shows live performance on the bukla in 1975, when I was at the top of my game. I don't think I'm as good as I was back then, hmm. but it's different now, too. Yeah. You know, So that's a good place to start. And then they did an, uh, a release called Lixiviation, which is a lot of my commercial work and early stuff. So if you want to hear the early stuff and the commercial stuff, Lixiviation. Um, then my, my last album was called Silver Ship. Uh, and coming soon will be live quad bukla. Excellent. Well, we're, we're going to listen for that. Great. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Really lovely to be with both of you. 
Thank you for joining me for the Apple Insider podcast this week. This is episode 153, and you can find me on appleinsider.com. You can find Mike and Neil and all of our writings on appleinsider.com. I'm at vmarks on Twitter. And I want to also invite you to listen to the Scout Tech podcast. Scout Tech is a 12-year-old girl who interviews scientists and engineers. And she's going to conduct soon an interview with Adyonat, who is a Nobel Prize winner. And she's going to have that interview posted soon. I invite you all to listen to it. And it, go ahead and feel free to leave us good reviews on iTunes. Let us know what we're doing wrong with uh, you know by tweeting me or tweeting Neil, things like that, and how we can help you hear more of what you'd like. But please feel free to leave us a review on iTunes if you like it. We, we love those. And I want to thank you so much. We'll be back next week. <laughs>